Good morning, friends. I'm happy to be together with you today to worship our Lord and hear from Him in His Word. Uh, and what a, what a section of Scripture to contemplate as a Christian, to think about, to sing about, to pray about, which we've been doing all service. And it seems that this particular idea of contemplating the necessity of a dying Savior uh, has become less interesting even to Christians. Our culture seems to have minimized, they even dismiss the seriousness of sin. Uh, and sadly, this kind of thing even happens in the church. We rename sins to normalize them and to remove the stigma from them so that we can participate without any heavy guilt, at least unbearable guilt. For example, adultery has become affairs. Gossip has become sharing, or in our circles, prayer requests. Um, argument has become discussion. Lust has become daydreaming. Boasting about family and friends or self has become so normalized we don't even have a second thought about anyone who posts on Facebook or Instagram every time there's an event or accomplishment that takes place. It's become so out of balance that many people are offended if their friends don't like their posts. Why has our culture drifted from a biblical view of sin to our current perspective? What happened to us, to the world? Well, I think it's because we don't want to face the reality of our negative and hopeless condition which sin is, right? It's uncomfortable to think of ourselves as people with deep-seated problems. Now, I can think of you all with deep-seated problems, but I, me? Really? And so we start renaming our sins and stuff like that. Um, let's just rename stuff and normalize it so we can, you know, smile at each other and feel good about ourselves. And, and this approach to sin isn't good for the soul. It isn't helpful when, when it comes to solving the chaos that sin has created in each of our lives. So, as you experienced already today at Sun Valley Church, we do our best to take sin seriously here. To the point of reminding each other in our services of our sin that we just experienced. Now, we don't do this to grind you into dust and to make you feel awful and depressed about your circumstances. We do this weekly at Sun Valley Church because God tells us that the only way past sin is to acknowledge it and bring it to him for cleansing. And so if we don't talk about it, there's no resolution. We send you out of here with a charge and you die in about 12 hours. Back into the wallowing in which you brought. And so our, our commitment to addressing sin weekly is extremely for your good, for your benefit, for your joy, really. Now, if you've never taken the time to consider the seriousness of sin or haven't done so recently, the Lent season that time between winter and Resurrection Sunday is designed specifically to bring our sinful condition into focus. That's why the Lent season exists, 
It, it leads us not to the place of groveling in despair, but it leads us to a loving Savior who came to earth for this very reason, to solve all the sin problems that we ourselves have created. If nothing else, today's passage that you just heard read helps pick our attention and ask us to think about the seriousness of our sin, doesn't it? How can you read what we just read and not think about our sin problem? Jesus, the Son of God who came from heaven to earth specifically to deal with our sin, went through the most severe treatment anyone ever has, and it should cause us to stop and think a little more deeply about all of this, which is what I intend to walk you through this morning. To begin with, my focus is going to be on verses 16 through 32 of Mark 15. I hope you have your bulletin open with the outline in front of you because it'll be helpful for you to digest the passage a little bit more deeply and, and significantly. The physical sufferings of Jesus, interestingly enough, have always been a, a window through which we can see the loving heart of God. If you're one who struggles to see the love of God in your own case, um, the Lent season, and particularly this passage, I think will help clarify his infinite and amazing and perfect love for you, particularly you. The physical torture of Jesus is not the focus of the New Testament writers, in the Gospels especially, because all of their readers were very familiar with the detail of the torture that took place on Calvary and that day leading up to the crucifixion. Uh, they had all seen it. They were all witnesses. And what we read in the Gospels, as graphic as it seems to us, is mild in comparison to the reality of what took place. And we know so because historians reveal to us exactly <laughs> what crucifixion looked like. And I'm not here to, to lay the gore out for you. I'm certain that you can watch plenty of YouTube videos on the matter. But it does help to review the context here to establish the significance of our sin and the wonderful, glorious beauty of our Savior. So what the New Testament writers did focus on was the incredible mockery inflicted on Jesus throughout his entire ordeal, beginning with the arrest in Gethsemane, leading up to his death on Calvary's cross. And part of the reason for this focus in the New Testament on his shame versus the torture itself is to help contrast the rebellious attitudes of mankind towards God's loving attitude towards us. We stand here with the fist in the face of God, challenging him on every front, it seems. And so the New Testament writers wanted to contrast that attitude with the attitude of God extending grace and mercy to us when we don't deserve it at all. There's the contrast. That's what we need to see today as we examine our hearts concerning these things. But to present to you, as the Gospels do, the order of events, I, I want to review them for you here for a second, just to, to get you up to speed if you're not already. First of all, after Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was interrogated by one of the two high priests in the day, Annas, 
And then he was put on trial by Caiaphas. Um, then the Sanhedrin, that, that religious body, uh, the leadership, 71 men, the aristocrats, filled this body of leaders, and they called themselves the Sanhedrin. They held an illegal court proceeding that I laid out for you in the past couple of weeks, where they falsely accused and condemned Jesus. In that setting, they began the shaming and the torture that our text picks up on today. It started back with the, the, the kangaroo court in the Sanhedrin about 12 hours before this event that we, we heard read just a minute ago. So in the Sanhedrin, in the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling religious leaders of all of Israel, they repeatedly hit Jesus in the face after blindfolding him. How would you like your religious leaders acting like that with anybody, let alone an innocent person? And they, in the midst of this, they would ask him to prophesy who would hit him. We're talking about shaming. Focus isn't on the torture, it's on the shame that's taking place. What we sang about earlier. This incident would have caused his face to swell, of course, to bruise and to bleed. But after they took their shots at Jesus, they led him to Pilate, who declared, remember, Jesus to be innocent. I find no fault in him, Pilate determined and said. Um, then Pilate because he found no fault in him, send him across town to Herod's place, Herod's quarters. And Herod was actually the governor of Galilee, if you remember, and he was in town for the Passover celebrations. But Pilate sent him to Herod because Pilate found no fault in him. So I'll send him over to Herod, and maybe Herod can make sense of this situation we have. And what we have recorded in uh, the three other gospels, not recorded by Mark, is Herod's soldiers taking their shots at Jesus, ridiculing, shaming, physically beating Jesus. Um, after Herod and his soldiers had their fun, they sent Jesus back to Pilate, not finding any fault either, um, who then had Jesus whipped to the edge of death, as we've read about, and then handed him over to the soldiers. So Pilate received Jesus back from Herod he had him flogged to literally within an inch of his life um, and then gave Jesus to his soldiers. We see in verse 16, and the soldiers led him away, uh, in, away inside the palace, that is the governor's quarters, and they called together the whole battalion. So the whole battalion made up of 600 soldiers were around Jesus in a courtyard taunting and beating him. And of course, the, the point was to humiliate him as much as possible. Which brings us to our first point, the shaming of Jesus by the Romans. This was the battalion that we were speaking of. 600 men, verses 16 through 20, having their fun with Jesus. And we see that what it began with was beating and mocking. Jesus was already bleeding. He was already swollen, bruised. By the time he showed up to this particular ordeal, here it says in these verses in front of us that they put on a purple robe to Jesus to, to shame him, to make fun of him. And this purple robe was probably just an old used uh, centurion cape that had faded. That's why it was purple, not crimson. It was, it was made in crimson, but 
after time it, it turned, it faded and turned purple and they probably pulled one out of a, an old closet someplace and put it on him to make fun of him. Then they put on this crown of thorns and these, this crown of thorns was not like our rose bushes around here. The crown of thorns were from a thorn bush in the Judean area which produced thorns about two inches long and they wove it together to make a crown for him. And then we read in Matthew 27 that this group, Pilate's battalion, uh, put together this crown and then put a reed in his hand and, and mocking, mockingly bowed down to him as if that were a royal scepter, shaming him again. This is the focus. It's the shame of Christ, not so much his physical torture. And during this, they called out, as we read, Hail, King of the Jews, saluting him, it said, walking past him. I don't know how 600 men would do this, but I picture kind of like a, a hornet's nest around Jesus, each taking their shots, both physically and verbally. And they continued during this thing to beat his head with a stick, which is where we get our song, O Sacred Head Now Wounded, which we're going to focus on a little bit this morning, and we're going to end our service with it. But the first, the first stanza in the, the song, O Sacred Head Now Wounded, goes like this. O Sacred Head Now Wounded, with grief and shame weighed down, now scornfully surrounded with thorns thine only crown. How pale thou art with anguish, with sore abuse and scorn. How does that visage, visage languish, which once was bright as morn? This is a song, a, a, a stanza, that describes what Mark is describing. A wounded head, wounded more by shame than physical torture. Isaiah, which was our verse of meditation earlier, Isaiah 50 verse 6, prophesied concerning the words of our Savior, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. 700 years before Christ went through these things, Isaiah wrote these things. Jesus, of course, knew this. He knew all of Old Testament prophecy concerning the suffering Messiah, suffering Savior. He knew exactly what would happen to him on this day, and yet he willingly, and Hebrews tells us joyfully, walked through it. In Mark chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus actually announced what would happen to his, him to his disciples months before it happened. He says in Mark 10, 34, and they will mock him, speaking of himself, the Savior, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and after three days he will rise. This is when Peter stands up boldly and says, that's never gonna happen, what are you talking about? In John's gospel, Pilate is said to have hoped to garner pity from the Jewish religious leaders after seeing Jesus suffering and shamed through all the things that we've just been hearing. But the demands of the Sanhedrin for his crucifixion grew louder and louder. <laughs> Pilate finally, in his frustration, said, you take him and kill him. And of course, they couldn't, could they? Why? Because they were under Roman law. It was required that Rome do any capital punishment, and that's all that would satisfy their bloodthirst was his crucifixion. 
So they repeated their charges of blasphemy about Jesus to Pilate and stated that Jewish law, according to Jewish law, Jesus had to die. Listen to what they said. This is John 19. The Jews answered Pilate, we have a law and according to that law, he ought to die. Why? Because he made himself to be the son of God. He called himself God. They knew his claims. Jesus claimed deity. They knew it. And of course, this announcement to Pilate was news to him and it frightened him. What do you mean? This guy claims to be God? He's not acting normal like a normal convict would act. You remember how Pilate first responded to him. It says he was amazed that he kept quiet. And so this is what we read in John 19, 8. When Pilate heard this statement that he claimed to be God, he was even more afraid. He knew he was in trouble at this point. And then continuing, this is how Pilate reacted. Verses 9 through 12 of John 19. Pilate entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus. So he had been outside talking about Jesus with the Jewish religious leaders. He comes back inside, faces Jesus, and he says, where are you from? He knew where he was from. He had just sent him to Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee. He knew he was from Galilee. What's he asking? Are you really from heaven? That's what he's asking. Where are you from? But Jesus gave him. <clears throat> gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you're not going to speak to me? Listen to this interchange. <laughs> and consider your own life and the things you worry about. Do you not know, Pilate asked Jesus, that I have the authority to release you or to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all, not in part, but at all, unless it had been given you from above, that place that I come from. <laughs> Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. You can appreciate that attitude, can't you? Yeah. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Now here's a couple application points I want you to consider. Whose authority are we under today? Are you under the authority of your boss at work? Secondarily, yeah. Are you under the authority of that disease that's riddling your body? Secondarily, maybe. At most. Jesus' words here should penetrate our soul to the deepest level. He says to Pilate, the most powerful person in the land, you have no authority unless I give it to you. <laughs> Standing there, bound, bruised, bleeding, beaten, shamed. You've got nothing, Pilate, on me. And he didn't say it proudfully or pridefully. No. He said it honestly, truthfully. What does this say about 
our circumstances. And who's running the show? I'm gonna, when we come back through the second time and discuss the theology of the cross here in a month or two, I'm gonna park here for at least one sermon and talk about what this means for us, the implications of this statement from Jesus, because it's profound. And I want you leaving here on that day with complete confidence in Christ. In, for every area of your life, for everything. So I hope you'll be here for that. But secondly, I want the second application point I want you to consider here is what the Jewish leaders said to Pilate. What a truthful statement this is, and they didn't even realize it. If you prefer Jesus, you are no friend of Caesar's. Isn't that true? If you prefer Jesus, you are no friend of the world, but conversely, it is also true, if you prefer the world, you are no friend of Jesus. So where are we this morning? Do we prefer Jesus or Caesar? Jesus or the world? Which is it? Jesus said you can't have both. And then, let's move on. Why did he do this, Jesus? Of course, we know the the correct doctrinal answer, right? If you've been in church for less than a year, you know the correct answer to that. But let me just remind you here of what's happening in the text in front of us. I want to suggest to you that Jesus was thinking of you, particularly. You. Not us, you, me, on this day. Listen to Isaiah 49, 16, and remember that Isaiah 40 through 66 was written about the coming suffering Savior. So these words are intended to strike a note in your heart as from the mind of Christ, Behold, the suffering servant says, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Which is significant when it comes to crucifixion, particularly, isn't it? I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. And are those scars still on Christ's body? You know that Christ still has a physical body, correct? You know that. Do you think his scars remain? Guaranteed. Our names were graven on his hands, engraved on, scarred his hands. And to to make this point more clear to you, consider Old Testament temple worship. On the Day of Atonement, happened once a year, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies with blood from the altar. Remember, he would go into this Holy of Holies on this special day to do one thing, to sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the presence of God. That's what he did, and that's all he did, and then he turned and left. 
once a year, took this blood of the innocent, walked into the presence of God, literally sprinkled the blood and walked out. What he wore, not only, not only was his person a picture of Christ, the high priest, the book of Hebrews describes this for chapters about how Jesus is actually our high priest, but the Old Testament high priest, the tabernacle high priests, were a picture of Christ entering into the presence of God with the blood of the innocent, and Hebrews says his own blood, not the blood of goats, his own blood, to present before the Father. All right? So this happened in this moment on Calvary. That's when Jesus entered the heavenly holy of holies with his own blood. And in the Old Testament, the, the high priest wore specific and beautiful garments into the Holy of Holies. And one of the things that stands out to me, at least, about his garments, especially when you think about Isaiah 49 that I just read for you about, our names being engraven on his hands, guess what was on the chest close to the heart of the high priest when he entered the Holy of Holies with his blood. Twelve stones, right? Precious stones. And on each stone was engraved one of the names of the twelve tribes. So all twelve tribes were engraved on his chest, representing the people of God. And so when Jesus entered the Holy of Holies in the heavenly realms with his own blood, he went with our names on his chest next to his heart. So everything that Jesus did while on earth, from his birth through his death, was to accomplish your salvation. And of course, his suffering was the pinnacle of his saving work. So those of you who aren't clear on the love of God for you particularly, you might be able to wax eloquent theologically about the love of God for people, but when it comes to believing that he loves you, consider these things. Now in light of what the Apostle John writes in his first epistle, chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And the opposite of live is die without him, right? The reason he came to earth was so that we might live instead of die. Might live for eternity with him instead of live in death for eternity. And then he, John continues in verse 10, in this is love. So he says, in this is love, God sent his son into the world so that we might live. In this is love points to not that we have loved God 
but that he loved us and sent his son to be the satisfaction or propitiation for our sins. This is the only way, friends, that the chaos of your sin is solved. It's not by ignoring them. It's not by renaming them. It's by taking them to Jesus. Daily. Secondly, the shaming of Jesus on the Via de la Rosa. We have here in verses 21 through 23 a description of what theologians call the via or the way of suffering, the via dolorosa. Historians and Bible scholars tell us that those sentenced to death by crucifixion were paraded through the city streets in order to humiliate them and to warn criminals. So what they would do, the, the condemned were taken up and down the city streets in a circuitous manner, in a route that was all over the place, in order to show off the condemned one, humiliate the condemned one, and then drag him outside the city to kill him. That's what's going on, verses 21 through 23. Jesus walking the way of suffering. And his suffering here was, of course, physical, but more than physical, it was shame. <clears throat> what was shaming? Well, he had to carry the instrument of his own death. The crossbeam of the cross is called a patabellum, and it, it was about seven feet long, weighing as much as 100 pounds. And the theology of the cross here is amazing. And I'm going to unpack this also for us in the weeks to come. But you remember in, in Genesis chapter 22, God paints a picture by the use of Abraham and Isaac of, of this very thing that's taking place here on the Via Dolorosa. You remember what Isaac had to carry up Mount Moriah, this very same mountain that Jesus was walking up with his crossbeam, wooden crossbeam. You remember what Isaac had to carry up the mountain? his own instrument of death. He had to carry his own wood for the altar on which his father would sacrifice him on Mount Moriah, the exact location of the death of Christ on Calvary. <laughs> That's worth talking about for at least one sermon. So we're going to do it. Now, what took place here on this Via Dolorosa was that a Roman soldier, one of the four that were walking around Jesus, on the way through this meandering path through the streets and byways of Jerusalem, one would have been walking out in front of Jesus carrying a placard with the words inscribed, according to John 19, 19, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, in order to shame him. Here's your king people. Hey, King Jesus, how's it going back there? Jesus, of course, stumbling along behind, losing blood by the second, mostly nude, walking through the packed streets of Jerusalem. Shaming was the focus. And he did this 
all for his people. Us, of course. But look how Mark makes this obvious. He says in verse 21, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry Jesus' cross. This cross beam, the seven foot, 100 pound beam, Jesus could no longer carry. He was physically unable to carry it. And so they grabbed this guy out of the crowd named Simon. And I'm suggesting to you, and I'm not alone on this, in case you think I'm out to lunch, um, the Simon of Cyrene was a Jew who had come to Jerusalem for Passover. He was from Cyrene, not Jerusalem. And they compelled him to carry Jesus' cross piece. The Roman soldiers' choice of Simon was, was somewhat random, at least from their perspective, but it was providential by God to Simon. How so? It, 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 this is an amazing picture, and it demonstrates the sovereign election of God of his people. Simon was from Cyrene, which was North Africa, which meant he was a foreigner, which meant he was an ethnic minority, he was a stranger, which is why they chose him, and not a regular Jerusalem Jew. They looked different, they were different. So they chose this guy who was considered less than, out of the crowd, to carry Jesus' cross. And what have we learned about Jesus' view of less than people? It's all over scripture. The second before the first, starting with Adam and Eve all the way through to this point. The exchange that took place between Jesus and Simon here on this meandering path, however long that took, resulted in the conversion of Simon. You're saying, and by the way, his whole family. How do you know that? Well, not from here, except that Mark names two guys besides Simon. He says, the father of Alexander and Rufus, and then says nothing else. Why? Because his audience was what? Who was who Mark's audience? The church in Rome, right? That's who was receiving his letter, this gospel. Why didn't he go on and explain who Alexander and Rufus were? Because they knew them. Alexander and Rufus were part of their church. They were there. How do we know that? Romans chapter 16, verse 13 in Paul's greetings of the Roman church, he says, greet Rufus and his mother. So, evidently, Rufus was in the church, Alexander was in the church, their mother was in the church, and Simon was in the church, which means they were saved. This sovereign meeting between Jesus and Simon was ordained by God to save his soul. Can you imagine what that conversation was between Simon and Jesus for those minutes or hours that it took to get from Pilate's headquarters to the cross? 
I wish we would have a word for word on that. So even in Jesus' extreme suffering, he personally reached out to this man and brought him into the family of God. He did the same for one of the thieves. He, Jesus went to the cross knowing that he was going to convert the soul of one of these thieves. Would you exchange that reward for that penalty? Would you? Would you have put your place in the put yourself in the place of that thief knowing that if you did you would receive eternal salvation? What a loving savior. Jesus demonstrated once again his love for those that society may view as less valuable, a criminal, a minority, a foreigner. What a wonderful picture work for mankind. His shaming, even to death on a cross, secures salvation. It doesn't make it possible, he secures it. It's not a maybe, it's a for certain. I'm going to get to explaining that in a second. Even one of the soldiers that we're going to get to in verse 39 of Mark 15 actually came to faith. One of the soldiers who was pounding the spikes into Jesus' body came to faith that day. <clears throat> Beyond these amazing acts of mercy and grace to Simon, to the thief, to the Roman centurion, Jesus continued, even in his suffering, to extend mercy and grace to the crowd that was there mocking him that day. How do we know? We read that they left beating their chest. What have we done? And then we get to Acts 2, and it records that evidently numerous people who had been at the crucifixion, who had called for Jesus' crucifixion in Pilate's court, came to saving faith in Jesus on, in, on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. The same crowd. Jesus extended mercy and grace to them. His enemies, the ones who literally killed him. Additionally, <laughs> this grace and mercy thing is getting out of control, right? Additionally, many of the priests who had participated in the Sanhedrin kangaroo court, in the shaming of Jesus, in the mock trial, in the beating of Jesus, also came to faith. You would have think Jesus would have withheld salvation from at least that group, right? We would have understood that, but here's the point. Jesus saves enemies. And by the way, that's all he saves. He doesn't save any other people. Unless you're an enemy, he doesn't save you. In case you're sitting here thinking that you weren't an enemy of Jesus when you accepted him. I was only six for Pete's sake. Well, you were an enemy at the age of six. Every sinner is a rebel, right? That's, what, that's the description of sinners. They're rebels. We're rebels. And every rebel is an enemy. 
Jesus only saves enemies. He doesn't save nice people. He doesn't save non-committal people. Oh, I haven't just decided about Jesus. No, that's an enemy. Jesus only saves enemies. So if you're here today and haven't received Christ and are opposed to him, you're in a good place because he only saves enemies. If you're thinking that you're, you know, set and you're doing pretty well, guess what? You're not on the list to be saved just yet. Once the soldiers and Jesus arrived at the place of execution, which was Calvary, Mount Moriah, Jesus was offered wine mixed with myrrh, it says here in the verses in front of us. And of course, Jesus didn't accept this offer. This offer was usually made to those being executed like this as a narcotic for the pain they were about to experience. But Jesus rejected it, not wanting to miss anything of the experience of redeeming his people. Jesus rejected it. He wanted to maintain clarity as he bore the weight of our sins, as he shared with Simon of Cyrene, as he shared with the thief, as he shared with his disciples and his own mother from the cross. Which leads us to the third shaming, the shaming of Jesus on the cross, verses 24 through 32. I want to read these for you just because of their power. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided, wagging their heads, saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes, this is the Sanhedrin, this wonderful group of people, gathered around him and mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled the thieves. It was a a shame fest. So as I said, crucifixion was commonplace in all the Roman Empire. It was the execution of choice used to inflict the most shame, the most extreme pain to those sentenced to death and was used as a deterrent to criminals. By the time of Christ, scholars tell us that Rome had crucified at least 30,000 people just in Israel. And after the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, there were so many Jewish rebels that they were crucifying, they ran out of wood and they had to take turns being crucified. So everybody who received this letter from Mark knew exactly (laughs) what was going down here. But let's look at the execution. Once the execution party arrived at the location of the execution, Simon would, of course, dropped the crossbeam and Jesus would have been stripped naked and then thrown down upon this crossbeam where the spikes were driven through his wrists. Spikes were about six to seven inches long and they would drive them to the wrist um, instead of the palm because of the weight of the body would rip through the palm. So they drove it beneath the bones in the palm so that it wouldn't be, you know, falling off the cross. 
Um, there's a theological point here that I just can't pass by today. I, I was going to wait and share it with you the next pass of this passage, but uh, listen to this and see if it doesn't cause your heart to rejoice. In order to be saved, we must put on the righteousness of Christ, right? Right? Isn't that how it is? Yeah. Even as good as we think we are, there is no salvation if we're dressed in our own righteousness. Hence the necessity of repentance. <laughs> repentance from your own good works, repentance from your own efforts. Our righteousness doesn't cut it. We need Christ's righteousness. Correct? Yeah. This is, the, this is the basic of the faith. The only way to be acceptable to God, the Father, the judge of all mankind, is to put on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And his perfection must be given to us or else we are lost. Now, the only way that we have his righteousness to put on is by way of his being stripped on Calvary. The only way we can put on his garments of righteousness is if he lost his physical garments on that day. John Calvin wrote this, The Son of God was stripped of his clothes that we may know the wealth gained by his nakedness. God willed his Son to be stripped that we should appear freely in the garments of his righteousness and fullness. We are here today saved, if we are saved, because of this event. The soldiers would have raised Jesus up, nailed or tied the crossbeam to the post on the ground, and then lifted it up and dropped it into the hole, jarring every bone that wasn't yet broken. Of course, in Jesus' case, not one of his bones were broken. There, Jesus would have had a single spike driven through both arches of his feet into the post, and this would have begun, of course, the excruciating death experience of crucifixion. The details that Mark does give, although few, remind us of who's being crucified. Each of the details that I just read for you, and by the way, it's the second time you've heard them this morning, read to you, each of these details re record something that was prophesied to take place concerning the Messiah in the Old Testament. For example, in Psalm 22, verse 18, it says in that Messianic Psalm, they will divide, they will gamble over my garments. Every single event that Mark records can be traced back to Old Testament prophecy. There's not one that he records that isn't traceable. <laughs> so crucifixion was a slow death, even as painful and as much blood loss as there was. What ultimately killed the one being crucified was suffocation. Eventually the victim would tire of pushing up from their knees to catch a breath, and so they would suffocate to death from weakness and um, blood loss. In his death throes, Jesus was clearly and fully conscious as he spoke with the other criminals and spoke to his own disciples, spoke to his own mother. And it was during this time that Jesus spoke the famous seven last words, which we're going to uh, unpack for you at the Good Friday service this year. I hope you'll put that on your calendar and be here. It's a powerful service. Uh, you need to be here, and so do your neighbors. But let's look at the added insults that we have in front of us. The shaming continued while Jesus was hanging on the tree. First, 
there was this inscription that was placed on the cross making fun of Jesus, King of the Jews. This was meant to shame him and the Jewish leaders who spitefully brought Jesus to be executed. The Jews didn't want the sign, but they wrote it, Pilate wrote it anyways, to shame all of them, including Jesus. Secondly, Jesus was crucified between two thieves. These weren't just petty thieves, these were thugs, notorious, destructive, violent, and habitual thieves, probably were part of the sedition that Barabbas led. They were probably including Barabbas murderers. Listen to, I, I mean, Isaiah 53 said that, I'm not gonna read it for you, but Isaiah 53, 12 says that he would be numbered with transgressors, which he was, right? He was killed with them. Thirdly, Jesus was taunted by the crowd. Which crowd? The Jewish crowd. <laughs> Look at verse 29 through 32 again. His own people, the Jews, ridiculed and shamed him, their Messiah. So John 1.11 is a crushing indictment. He came to his own and his own received him not. Wow. But think for a moment. Think for a moment about the eternal and spiritual transaction taking place in this event. Remember, according to Jesus, God's greatest glory is the humiliation of Calvary. More glorious than creation itself. God's greatest glory, according to Jesus, is Calvary. And this was all done for our joy. Now, I understand that after hearing what I've been preaching, joy isn't the first thing on your mind. But you have to fight for it because that's the point. You have to get there. I understand the importance of solemnness and sadness and seriousness, which we ought to have, but we cannot go through reading of these things and miss the main point, which he did this for our joy. The purpose. <laughs> as horrible as the reality experience was, the purpose was to accomplish our eternal salvation, which brings us eternal joy. Friends, Good Friday is called Good Friday for a reason. It is good, isn't it? So, what did God the Father think of all this going on? What do you think was going through God the Father's mind? His only son being treated like this? Was he angry? for the murder of his son? Well, God's angry about all sin, of course. But the death of Jesus was God's idea. Did you hear that? The death of Jesus was God's idea. It was God's loving will towards you and me, the sinner. Listen to Isaiah 53, that great, great text. Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet, after talking about all the pain and suffering that the Messiah would go through, Isaiah says this, Yet, 
It was the will of the Lord, the will of Yahweh, to crush him. This was God's idea, which Ephesians chapter 1 makes clear also. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, God the Father, put him, God the Son, to grief. God did this so that you could have your sins forgiven. When his soul makes an, that is when the soul of Jesus makes an offering for guilt, which he did, listen, you who wonder if the work of Christ here on Calvary makes your salvation possible or actually accomplishes it, he shall see his offspring. It will happen. It's not it may happen. It will happen. Those for whom Christ died will be saved completely, fully, freely, forever. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his, day, prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Not might prosper. No, friends. If you are in Christ, he died for you so that your salvation would be sure, not maybe. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us that in while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. He doesn't wait for you to clean up your act. He doesn't wait till you become agreeable. He doesn't wait till you become a nice, shiny person. He died for us while we were enemies in our sin, shaking our fist in his face. <laughs> we would have been in the crowd shouting crucify him. Each of us. Not the worst of us, the best of us. And here's how Paul talks about this to his son in the faith, Timothy. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer. Now, before I knew Christ, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, an enemy. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. Jesus came to die for enemies. So in conclusion, I want you to just sit here and fight for joy through these horrible things I've just mentioned, but I've, I've given you some aid here. We're gonna play for you a song by Fernando Ortega called, well, the, the music's Ortega's, but the, the, the lyrics are, have been written for much longer than Ortega. Uh, I, I want you just to sit here and look at the words on the overhead and I just want you to worship in silence as you listen to this song being played. And, uh, and after the service, instead of talking about, you know, your disappointment with the final four, um, speak with someone here today about what the Holy Spirit impressed on your heart. It's good for Christians to respond to the preaching of the word. And we do that normally on Sunday morning by singing. It gives you a chance to like 
respond, which is what worship is. It's a response to God's goodness. Well, today, your response is to talk to somebody about what impression the Lord has made on your heart this morning from his text, from this text. But look at the words, listen to this song, and then David will come and close our service. <clears throat> 